This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Ramping up hiring in January, wage gains rebounding as well, providing fresh evidence of a durable jobs market that really backs the Fed's decision to stop cutting interest rates and handing the president an early election year boost. That's really the headline on our job story today. Investors, though, not so imp- uh, impressed, but uh, that may be more to do with the virus. But let's talk about the labor market and more. Chris Liu, um, back with us. He's former Deputy Secretary of Labor under the Obama administration, senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, and he joins us on the phone from Charlottesville, Virginia. Chris, so nice, as always, to have you back with us. What's? How do you see the labor market right now? It just, just when we feel like it can't get any better, it seems to. <laughs> you know, we, we've had a couple of months where we've, you know, I think sort of said maybe this is the end and now maybe yeah. things are picking up. Um, you know, we like to look, uh, when I was at the Department of Labor, to kind of smooth this out a little bit. And, uh, you know, I think what you're seeing, particularly with these revisions we had for the beginning of last year, is probably a slower job market at the beginning of 2019 that seems to have picked up a little bit. Um, you know, I caution about reading too much. There's always some funky things in the numbers. Um, I think the warm weather in January may have kind of artificially boosted these construction numbers, uh, which were up 44,000. Um, when I look at this, a couple of things that jumped out at me were, uh, one is the labor force participation rate, which went up uh, 0.2 percentage points, and that's a good thing. That means more people are coming into the labor market. Um, I looked at the manufacturing numbers, which are down 12,000, uh, and really over the last year are basically flat. Uh, and then I looked at wages, which are up about 35 one percent, which, you know, again, it's still good, but it's not, given where we, we are in this economic expansion, you'd be expecting a lot more than that. And so, given what you, how you led into this, uh, Chris, and, and yeah. looking at this, where do you think we go from here? What What's the next uh, leg of this? Well, look, I, I think part of it is, you know, I think we have, this economy has kind of faced this um, headwind over the past, really past year and a half because of uh, the trade disputes, mm-hmm. um, which have sort of subsided a little bit. They really haven't gone away. I mean, it's not like all the tariffs are gone now. Um, and now we obviously have this coronavirus, which is creating a headwind as all as well. Um, and then obviously, you know, um, you, you see things like manufacturing, which I think is troubling from a political standpoint for the president in the Midwest, um, the retail um, uh, job numbers, which you know, given the layoffs of Macy's or the store closings of Macy's will cause a problem. So I'd say, you know, this is good. I mean, at this point in, in, an, in an economic expansion, this is pretty good. And I just want to put some perspective. Our Bloomberg Daybreak team um, talked about those annual revisions, Chris, to the yeah. jobs data. And so that 2018 job gain to 2.31 million from 2.68 million. The 2017 and 2019 gains were about 2.1 million, meaning each year under the Trump team has been slightly slower than the 2.35 million rise in the final year of the Obama administration. So a little perspective because I feel like a lot of numbers are thrown out there or made in political speeches and so on and so forth. And we need to have some context. One thing I will get to, though, that you said is that you would you said you'd think it would be even stronger um, 
considering maybe where we are in this cycle, the job gains? Maybe why are they not? You mean the wage gains? Uh, no, I thought, you, I thought you said that in terms of even – Oh, I, th- I actually yeah. meant in the wage gains. Oh, you like did. You would expect yeah. – when, yeah, when you've been about 3.5%, 3.6% unemployment, you would think um, that the wages would be going up. And, you know, unfortunately, they really haven't. And to the extent they've been going up for low-wage workers, a lot of that is due to the, you know, dozens of states and cities that have increased their uh, minimum wages over right. the last couple of years. Um, I would also go back to, you know, I think an important point – to your earlier point about these revisions was um, when you start to look at from the time that the 2017 tax cut was passed in December 2017 to see if really there's been any impact at all in terms of job gains in 2018 and 2019. And you're sort of hard-pressed to see anything at all happening. Now, again, that may be because of the headwinds of tariffs um, or you know, some would argue like I did that tax cuts are not the best way to create job growth. And so, Chris, how do you factor in if you're sitting in the Labor Department at, at this moment and you're looking across the world at the coronavirus and the sort of yeah. ripple effects of that? How do you model it? How do you think about it? What do you do, if anything, to sort of prepare or in, in any sense uh, understand it? Well, I would say the first thing I would not do is what the Commerce Secretary did two weeks ago and say that the coronavirus is good for U.S. jobs. That's tone deaf, but it's also probably factually incorrect. I mean, obviously, we've got a huge export market in in China that's going to be closed off um, if if it really continues to accelerate. Um, Look, I mean, you know, in in any economy, um, you always are going to have these kinds of um, bumps. And, you know, it could be a coronavirus. It could be uh, what's happening at a Boeing right now. It could be, you know, natural disasters like hurricanes. And so I think what you really do is just have kind of a good strategy. Like, how do you create uh, or help stimulate good paying jobs in the economy? How do you train people for those jobs? And then you understand that there's going to be things that you just can't predict. All right, we're going to come back with Chris Liu, continue our conversation. Curious, too, to see what he has to say about kind of what happened on certainly the political uh, front this week and certainly as we head into uh, the New Hampshire debate tonight and the primary, of course, uh, next week. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on this Jobs Day Friday. Just a reminder. The Dow is now down more than 1%. Yeah, um, and still up strongly for the week, but definitely. And I do think the virus is a big story at play. You know, we've seen this before when there's some uncertainty about some big event And there could be developments over the weekend. Investors are just, let me just sit on the sidelines a little bit uh, and just wait to see how it all plays out. And then I'll come back on Monday. So the Dow down 313 points, down 1%. S&P a decline of about 23 points, down 7 tenths of a percent. NASDAQ down 8 tenths of a percent, down 73 points. Bloomberg Business Week, Carol Master, Jason Kelly. This is Bloomberg. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Let's get back to our conversation with Chris Liu, Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, also former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. He's also worked notably in all three branches of the government. So, Chris, you understand politics. You understand the government. What do you make of a week like this from the Democratic side? (laughs) 
Uh, well, it's this has certainly been a challenging week, yeah. um, and you know, and you know, the one well, the one thing you're thankful for is that given the way the news cycle works, you know, by next week we'll be talking. I've talked about three other things at this point now. Um, look, obviously, the the big focus now is looking forward to New Hampshire, and you know, we've. Um, left um, Iowa a bit muddled uh, for a variety of reasons, but even if there hadn't been the uh, technology issues with the vote reporting, you still would have basically had two people that more or less tied at the finish, Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg, uh, and then two people, um, two to three people in that second tier. And so I don't know that we got great clarity, but, you know, this is why we have primaries. Yeah, no, it's interesting, though, right, because you're exactly right, Chris. But I do wonder, you know, we've done a lot of coverage, as you would imagine, uh, just talking about some of the unfortunate missed momentum coming out of yeah. Iowa that was, you know, for the for the leader, right? Because at some point you just need the party to kind of come behind one, yeah. uh, one, one individual. You know, and, and unfortunately, notwithstanding, even if even if Iowa had turned up perfectly, mm. I'm not sure we're going to get that because I, I, you know, if I'm predicting New Hampshire, I think New Hampshire is going to be just as muddled. Uh, and then we move to some different states in Nevada and South Carolina that potentially Joe Biden or Elizabeth Warren can do better. And, you know, I, I don't think we're going to have much clarity after these first four um, uh, early states. And then obviously the um, you know, the big elephant in the room after that is, is Mike Bloomberg on Super Tuesday. So I think this could go on for a while. Well, and we just want to remind everybody, of course, Michael uh, Bloomberg is uh, a Democratic candidate for the upcoming presidential election. And, of course, Mike Bloomberg is the owner of Bloomberg LP, Bloomberg Philanthropy, and, of course, Bloomberg Radio on Bloomberg TV. Um, yeah, no, and I just, I guess, Chris, just to push a little bit further is, you know, yeah. I think there's a lot of discussion, too, about kind of what's going on at the Democratic Party. Is there just not uh, the coordination, you know, that whole idea of whether it was Republicans or Democrats, right? You want yeah. to fight the incumbent and who's in the yeah. White House. And it does feel like there's more about battling one another, and a certain yeah. amount of that comes, that's part of the process. But rather than saying, okay, what's best for the party, how do we beat the incumbent? You know, and this is always a challenge when you are the party out of power. And um, there is, you know, there's, frankly, an ideological rift within the party right now. You know, when you look at the demographics of the party, it's basically one-third moderate, one-third liberal, and one-third very liberal. And you've got a variety of candidates who can sort of each are trying to capture one of those lanes, um, and yet they're not really kind of crossing over to any of the other lanes right now. And so, you know, look, this is an important conversation. And, and you know, I think back to 2008 when I was with Barack Obama, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people were saying the same thing when we were in, in a really very extended pitched battle with Hillary Clinton. And in the end, the party did come together. And so this is the messiness of the process. And yes, I wish we were uh, united on day one, but that's certainly not the way it's going to be, at least for the foreseeable future. And so what does that mean as we look uh, forward months and months? How much do you worry from the Democratic side that this is just opening a very wide lane for President Trump to get reelected? Well, you know, what is interesting, and again, you know, it, this, is, this election is really more about Donald Trump. And, you know, notwithstanding the fact his approval ratings have come up a little bit, um, he's still below water. And, and given where the unemployment rate is at 3.6 percent, he should be doing a lot better. So ultimately, this comes down to being a referendum um, on his performance. And as long as you've got a, a nominee who I think can bring the different factions together, and in part that will depend on who that person's vice presidential pick is and how well they reach out to the uh, other primary opponents, I think that can come together. And I think, you know, you've had these kind of messy things before. Um, uh, for 
perfect example is 2016 in the Republican Party. I mean, if you go back and look at this at this point, you know, Ted Cruz had just won Iowa. Right. Donald Trump was, you know, and so th- this goes on for a while. And even at the convention in 2016, uh, you still had Ted Cruz holding out his support. Um, and then, you know, the party comes together. And, and, and so we sort of forget that history. And it is important to understand these primary battles can get a little messy. All right, Chris Liu, always good to catch up with you. We love talking to you about such a wide variety of things. Senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center and former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. Thank you. I started a joke, which started the whole world. All right, so this story really began last fall uh, when Ken Fisher, very well known in the money management business, got in front of an audience in San Francisco made some comments, and then those comments really took on a life of their own, opened up a whole series of stories. She's been following those comments and their aftermath from the beginning. Sabrina Wilmer, private equity reporter, investing reporter here in New York City with Bloomberg. There's Her story uh, in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week is riveting in, in many ways and really uh, goes into a firm uh, that many people know, but few understand. And I think you'll especially think that once you've read this piece. Sabrina's yeah. here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We're talking about Ken Fisher. We're talking about some comments last fall that ultimately cost him and his firm in terms of assets $4 billion. Sabrina, tell us what is going on. What happened? Yeah, well, he made some sexual comments at a conference in San Francisco, and people went on Twitter, and they were really offended by the comments. And then I talked to him later on, and he said he was really surprised by the reaction because he said these types of things many times in the past, and nobody questioned him. And then that resulted in $4 billion in assets leaving the firm, mostly from institutional investors. But Assets have actually grown since then to $121 billion. So he's not going out of business. Right. <laughs> he's lost $4 billion, but he's still got a lot of money. Still got $121 billion and counting. And, what's yes. and what I love about, there's so many, um, everybody's got to read this because we're only going to get to a piece of it. But what's interesting is, and you make that distinction, is that he's got a lot of individual investors. That's the bulk mm-hmm. of that money, right? Right. It's like about two-thirds of the money is, institu- is individual investors, and they're scattered throughout the country. Um, and they tend to be stickier than institutions because institutions have headline risk and right. they don't like negative news. Right. So, I mean, you had some pretty notable people. Fidelity, I, b- I believe, was one of them that, yeah. that pulled some of their money. Uh, and so, Sabrina, remind us who Ken Fisher is, because it, for a lot of listeners and, and viewers out there, they're probably saying, oh, yeah, I know that guy. Like, mm-hmm. I've seen him on TV or I've heard his ads or I get a bunch of stuff in the mail from him. That's that right. has been the genius in some ways of him building this huge empire. Yeah, he kind of has an older model uh, where he sends out direct mail and he's known for bashing Wall Street and, you know, attacking annuities and he's got a very aggressive sales operation where the salespeople, they make hundreds of calls a day. I mean, once you get something in the mail and you click on it, you're basically in their database almost for life. Um, and so people, the salespeople just keep calling and calling and calling. And that's kind of how he has built his empire. And he's not alone in those tac- tactics, right? I think over yes. the decades we've talked about uh, firms that do aggressive you know, cold call, uh, calling. Um, What's interesting, too, is a couple things. His performance, has he been a good money manager for the people who invest with him? I mean, it's been mixed on the private client side for the over 10 years. 
he's missed his um, benchmark and it, and he doesn't use the typical like an S&P mm-hmm. 500 but he uses a MSCI global index um, but f- from a three and five year uh, standpoint it's uh, beating it by one percentage point so it's not amazing performance yeah. and he charges investor- very high fees one one to one which is as you brought out because we talked with you earlier in the week for our weekend show it's unusual, right? In this environment where it's the drive to go lower, he's still charging fees. His clients are okay with that. Um, they seem they seem to be happy with the performance, and they they Fisher puts on a lot of events and luncheons for the clients, so they they love to hear him speak, and and that's kind of Ken Fisher's argument for. Uh, charging that much he says he's not like a typical Mm -hmm. active manager because he offers all these other services well and you spent time with him you uh, you know after doing all this reporting you went out to california northern california went to his compound of sorts uh there uh near where he grew up tell us about the culture of the firm and and sort of what he's created because that's unique i i interviewed a lot of former employees and i was told that it's kind of a cult-like culture where a number of employees are kind of molded into the founder's image, Ken Fisher's image. Uh, Of course, the company disputes that and they say that everybody, you know, has their own way of thinking and they encourage that. Um, And then I guess his his way of speaking is part of this macho culture, Mm -hmm. especially uh, in the sale on the sales side of things. Uh, for account executives, they hire a lot of people right out of college, and it's y- young men usually. And they can, dis- in some instances, instances they could display kind of a frat type behavior. And you can see that in my story through some of the email exchanges. So this is. Uh, That's, those are the sultry tones of uh, Joel Weber, the yeah. editor of Bloomberg <laughs> Business Week. Thank you for the intro there. Uh, <laughs> sultry tones on this story. <laughs> yeah, doesn't yeah. seem appropriate. Not, but, not quite right. Um, <laughs> Kind of the thing that has stuck out to me when I thought about this story and sort of what the bigger meaning I think is, Sabrina, was, and this is all in your story, was sort of this this thing that happened when institutional money ended up leaving, right? And mm-hmm. not in a small way, like $4 billion out the right. door pretty quickly. In a month. But yep. what was really surprising was that retail money stuck around. And like, if anything, actually, like more came in. That's right. And that to me, like really spoke to this thing about this firm which is it's like a throwback kind of yeah. like an old school mm-hmm. wall street model totally. that probably existed in the 80s a lot where it was like tons of direct marketing over smile the and dial stuff. totally yeah. right right and like i feel like that's gone right and yet you're in the the redwoods of california yeah. and camas washington like it, very it's much still alive it's still work and it works still but that retail phenomenon what did you make of that like that money Prove sticky. Yes, and I actually interviewed some of the retail money. Um, you, I quoted a woman in the story and asked her about Ken's comments, and she said that she has had no problem with them, and she thinks that people are too politically correct these days, and she she only cares about how her portfolio does. Well, to that end, how is performance? Uh, performance is is mixed. I mean, if you look at a ten year time frame you're missing your uh they're missing their benchmark and then on a three to five year it's uh, right beating it slightly 
I also thought it was interesting. I mean, like I said before earlier, we just got to wrap up. There's just so many great nuggets because you really do take us inside the company, the culture. You talk about it. You spend time with him. Um, is there a bottom line on your story? Just got about 30 seconds left here. Your takeaway from spending time with him? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that this starting out, I think this might be like a you know pitiful moment for the financial services industry yeah. uh, and people speaking up about a certain language being used. I think that's right. I mean, that to me, when I see it, it's like institutional money, which, you know, Bloomberg knows this world well. Right. Like, if, there is a very, very small margin for error. So you need mm -hmm. to watch your words, especially at conferences, very closely. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, it's a terrific story. I highly recommend everyone read it. You really understand not just this firm, but, but to uh, Joel's point, sort of this moment in financial services, both the way money is managed and the ways in which the people who manage it uh, conduct themselves. So terrific reporting, sort of the capstone of a lot of great reporting from the beginning of this uh, back in the fall. Sabrina Wilmer, thank you so much. PE reporter here for Bloomberg and Joel Weber. Promised, we're going to look at the uh, labor market on this Jobs Friday in a couple different ways. And that includes with our next guest, who's got a new report out just out today. In fact, closing the skills gap, what workers want. Uh, Becky Frankowitz is back with us. She's president, not CEO. I gave you actually um, a promotion, Becky, uh, teasing you. But she's president of Manpower Group North America. She joins us once again on the phone from Chicago. Becky, good to have you here with us. Tell us a little bit about um, the research you guys did, what you looked into, and what you found. Yeah, so last when you and I spoke, Carol, you and Jason and I, um, I closed with 2020 is a year of the American worker, and I hadn't seen the results from this research that, that you spoke of, um, but we just completed a survey at Manpower Group of 2,000 American companies and found that nearly three-quarters are struggling to find workers, and that's everything from delivery drivers to data, data analysis. And the reason that's interesting is, you know, one, it's three-quarters, so that's a lot, but the other interesting thing is that's tripled tripled in terms of difficulty since 2010. And so truly, you know, the defining challenge for continued growth is going to be attracting and retaining workers. And the study went, goes on to talk about, you know, what that's going to require in terms of being students of what workers want. And so what do you do? I mean, you, you're on the ground and you and your team are on the ground working with folks, trying to figure out what that actually looks like and what they can do, you know, where the proverbial uh, rubber meets the road. So, so give us an example if you can. Yeah, so, so first, competitive pace, table stakes. Yep. Um, we actually cut the data across all demographics, and for every group, pay still comes in at the top. So we shouldn't kid ourselves. There, there's movement below the number one, but number one is still pay. So you have to, you have to offer competitive pay or you risk productivity loss. Um, I had one plant leader out in Michigan I was meeting with recently, and you know he was struggling to, to keep pace with talent. And then we realized that they hadn't done a pay increase or even a pay review for several years. You can't do that. And today, economy, you know, people will vote with their talent and they'll leave if you're not willing to pay them, you know, what the market is bearing. So that that's first. So I was very happy to see blue collar wages go up in January's jobs report. So that's number one. Um, number two is employees are seeking, you know, more humanity from their work. They want flexibility. And again, we saw this really um, start to pop with millennials, Gen X, both genders, by the way, male and female, looking for more flexibility from their work, um, more well-being, you know, the fastest growing non-wage benefit in our country is now remote working. And so employees demanding the flexibility of where they work and where they contribute. It's also why we're seeing the growth in alternative models of employment. You know, people want to be CEO of themselves. 
Um, and the final area that is that is continuing to be important is people now want to learn. So, you know, the dynamic has shifted a little bit because prior we were saying, hey, employers have to have skills. They have to go find the skills and teach the skills. We're now seeing employees rise up and say, I want to learn and I want to be with a company that enables me and gives me access to training. Becky, what I still find um, fascinating is that in this tight labor market, you still have companies that let go of their workers. They do buyouts and so on and so forth. That they're workers who've been around at the company for a long time because they've gotten expensive. And I, I, I think we were having conversations, I feel like, coming off the crisis that at some point, because the labor market was getting tighter and tighter, that you know companies actually valued those people who had experience in the workforce. Have we seen any of that trend actually happen? Yeah, so I'd say two things. One, you know, the the rate of people, you know, layoffs is is very low right now. And so we saw a bit of a blip in in auto last year that, you know, we all watched. We saw those people come back into the economy. And so, you know, where you're seeing layoffs, they're in the the thousands, not the tens of thousands is the first thing I would say. The second is, you know, economists predicted that workforce participation would, would really plummet with boomers retiring. And we're seeing the opposite. So we're seeing boomers stay in the workforce. You know, work is the new retirement for boomers. And now for the first time, we did a study of 65 plus, which means, mm-hmm. you know, you have a large enough population working. And they're the only group out of the groups of demographics we looked at that put purpose in the top position. So the company they work for and the manager they work for and the work that they do is very important to them. So the only ones that had purpose that high in the list versus pay. And do you think, Becky, that is a sign of the times, just a robust job market that candidly, you can be a little choosier and you can, I'm being cynical admittedly here, but that you can say, oh, I really want to do something meaningful. I want to have purpose in my job because the job market is so good. Or is this really a long-term change? It's hard to know, but I would love your insight on that. Yeah. So Jason, I would agree with you if you know, our population didn't reach a century low in terms of growth. The birth rate hit a 32-year low last year. And yeah. so even if we, we, you know, the labor force frees up a bit, it's not going to be enough. And, you know, humanity is once you get this taste of freedom that yeah. you can, you know, for, 47% of employees that are happy today in their job, happy, are saying, yeah, but I'm open to other opportunities. And so this idea that, you know, I'm, a, I'm an employee of one and I can take my skills and vote, I don't see that changing even if we get a little, a bit of free up in the labor market because the long-term population trends don't say we're going to get a big relief. That's really interesting. Well, and, you know, sort of given your background, we and we talked about this before, you know, working at PepsiCo and others, like you, you really do have a great understanding of this. Becky Frankwitz, thank you so much, president of Manpower Group North America. She joined us on the phone from Chicago. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Just about 11 minutes left in today's trading day, and really for the week overall, of course, it is Friday. Let's get to the drive to the close. James McDonald is in our studio, CEO at Hercules Investments, Chief Executive Officer, Chief Investment Officer as well. They've got roughly $600 million in assets under management based in Los Angeles in our interactive broker studio right here in New York City. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. One of the most beautiful buildings 
I've ever experienced. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, it's kind of fun to it's be here. It's a nice little home. And a lot of free snacks, too, which yeah. is kind of, <laughs> kind of entertaining. Um, interesting week. And here we are seeing a little bit of a pullback in the market, um, James, today. But it's been a bullish one overall. What are the interesting investment trends that you're seeing right now? It's a great question. I think at the top, I have to say volatility is the most compelling buy at this level. It's at all-time lows. On the opposite side of the bull market, which has lasted longer than any bull market in history, both in growth and in tenure, the opposite side of that is volatility. It's at an all-time low. That's what I like to buy in terms of growth, in terms of where we're finding opportunities in this toppy market. I have to go outside of the United States. I like Ireland. Hmm. I like Israel. Both entire economies can be held in a single ETF. Uh, outside of that, we have to be very cautious. We were long U.S. stocks at the beginning of the year, but that was before the virus. No one has ever seen the scope and extent of what this virus can do because it's new. And so we don't know what's going to happen, and that is uncertainty, and uncertainty is what keeps stocks from growing. But what's most interesting, the question you asked me, is how quickly the market rebounded from that initial sell-off. That was extremely impressive to me. And it earmarks... You're talking about the U.S. market? I'm talking about the U.S. stock market. Got it. Uh, we've hit 52-week highs, all-time highs, days after the introduction of a global potential pandemic. That's very powerful, and I think it... Tells you what? Tells you what? It tells me that all the previous risk-off bull market runs that we saw post-trade deal, post-impeachment, post risk going into the end of 2020 with geopolitical tension in the Hong Kong protests. After each of those risks to the market, we saw a shrug off in a rally. The same thing happened here with the initial spread of the virus. It tells me that this bull market is real. It tells me that we have to be uh, persistent in understanding that the drivers are getting stronger. The unemployment report that came right. out this morning, uh, it just underscores the typical concept that, you know, this bull market can continue to go. Um, now, having said that, my job is to put money to work. Mm -hmm. So if someone hires me today or yesterday at a 52-week high, where do I put that money to work? We have to be very cautious. And so we're building portfolios with some volatility exposure um, to offset any uh, pullbacks we get like we saw today. So that volatility yeah, exposure. Yeah, so how do you do that? Yeah, what, how does that play out then? I'm so glad you asked me that question. <laughs> uh, this is a once-in-a-generation trade. And let me just set this up for you. So we're at 475 consecutive months of growth. It's an all-time record. There's only been two other times in history where bull markets even approached this. It was the post-war, post-World War II, two, right. and then the roaring 90s. Uh, nothing has ever even been close. And so we've gone longer and higher in this bull market than at any time in history. So on the opposite side of that, volatility has gone lower for longer than it ever has. If you look at straight statistical ratios, volatility is declining at a faster rate then markets are growing. And so that's the buying opportunity. Um, I liken this buying opportunity to January 9, 2009, when General Electric, Coca-Cola, Bank of America, and Citigroup were trading at less than book value. Right. Unbelievable values. And so that's where volatility is. But unlike those companies that grow at a linear rate, when volatility returns, it's going to spike. It's going to spike dramatically. That's what volatility does. If you just look at the past week, a small 1.5% pullback on the S&P caused a VIX spike. The VIX is a popular fear index. The VIX spiked 
by 70 percent. In so are you actually sessions. buying VIX, the VIX, or what are you buying? I'm getting to that. Okay. I wanted to set up so everybody can understand. Patience. This is an asset class that's difficult to understand because it isn't tangible, right? You can't walk into a VIX store. So the <laughs> actual securities we purchase, it depends on how much upside someone wants. So just setting that up, the VIX spiked 70%. The VIX is a medium-term volatility instrument. Well, there's right. a short-term volatility instrument that you can buy through a security called UVXY. It's a triple leveraged volatility instrument. That sounds oh, scary. Oh, but I don't want to tell the public because then I won't be the only one that can benefit from this and my clients. <laughs> so UVXY, the way it trades, you can get the options on UVXY at a nickel or so over intrinsic value. So as an options trader, we want to find situations where we can really benefit from being right without overpaying the premiums. And so UVXY, when volatility returns, UVXY is going to run from, it was about $12 a month ago, it's trading around 14 or 15. UVXY is going to run to the 50s, okay? So if you understand options, we can get one strike out of the money for around a dollar. Mm -hmm. So we can own a strike that will ultimately be worth 35 dollars $40, $50 for a dollar. That's the power of where we stand with volatility being low. And that's one example of a trade. That is a one strike out of the money. For those who really wanna buy their beach house overnight, there's a two or three strike trade you can do, and you can buy these contracts for 20, 30 cents that'll be worth $50. And so this just underscores the remarkable time we in. So when there's with, not really a lot of volatility necessarily in the overall market, you can play the volatility that you're seeing to some extent or the, the moves, the dramatic moves that you're seeing in the VIX options. So this is Oh, not, we got about 30 seconds left. Okay, so you can do it in the VIX options, but we're talking about UVXY. And so in any case, right. volatility is going to spike. It, it's a lot more expensive now than it was two weeks ago because we have the introduction. Right. But with the last 30 seconds, I'll simply say we can look outside of stocks and bonds and commodities for great right. upside. And, and the VIX and the volatility sector is a great way to do that. No, it's That's kind of cool. a refreshing way to do it, right? Yeah. It's, that's really interesting. Really interesting. Play on right. the moves. Uh, great first visit with us, James McDonald, yeah, Chief you. Executive Officer, Chief Investment Officer of Hercules Investments, looking after about $600 million out there in Los Angeles. He's here in chilly, cloudy New York City. Oh, but it's so beautiful today. in these studios. It is, it is nice. Nice <laughs> yeah. to see you. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.